Welcome to the Healing Center Conversations podcast, where we create space for conversations that heal. I'm your host, Dr. Byron McClure, a nationally certified school psychologist. I, along with our special guests, will give you insight to promote collective healing by putting people first. Through weekly conversations with educators, psychologists, and healers, we'll discuss ways to heal, thrive, and live your best life. This is the Healing Center Conversations Podcast. Welcome to the Healing Center Conversations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Byron McClure, and today we have a very special guest, uh, a fellow IUP alum in the building too, Dr. Nicole Holland-Sims. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. McClure. This is an honor. Absolutely. It's really my pleasure to to have you and get to pick your brain on some things. So I, I would love if you could just share for the people first, before we even get into you and your background, how are you, first of all? Oh, that's a loaded question, isn't it? When you ask folks that, and normally we're used to being like, oh, you know, I'm good. Well, you know how it is. You you think about all that you're doing each and every day. And so when people actually ask you that with intentionality and say, you know, how are you doing? It, it really makes a difference. And I can tell you, honestly, I am taking it one day at a time. I have learned that trying to plan out and and think that you have it all together, if COVID taught me nothing else, (laughs) is to not think that you can do it all in the time frame that you think it should happen in. Because I don't know about you, but I always heard that when you make plans, God laughs. And I think in a lot of cases, he is chuckling when we try to to say, nope, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and this is how it's going to be. He has humbled me in, in a lot of ways. And so how I'm doing right now is taking it one day at a time and getting those small wins where I can get them. Absolutely. And sometimes God has a funny way of humbling us. And for our listeners, can you just talk a little bit about who is Nicole Hollinson. Wow. So when I think about who am I, when I do trainings, I often open with that because one of the things that I like to talk about is the importance of self-awareness. And so as part of that work, when I think about who I am, the core of who I am really is a mother. I have a four-year-old that I just simply adore. He challenges me in ways that I never thought I would be challenged before, but I am learning how to be a mommy. I'm a wife and I've only been married five years, but that's also been something that has been a learning experience, for lack of a better term, just how we ebb and flow and figure out how to be parents too. So I enjoy those roles the most. They bring me the most joy. I would say as far as professionally, I am someone who loves learning. I know you probably hear guests that say that all the time, but it truly is something that keeps me going. It feeds me to get new content, to learn new skills. And so I think it's something that will continuously be a part of who I am moving forward. And it has sustained me in my career from being a school psychologist, practicing in a school, to moving to being a consultant and helping other psychologists and other school districts figure out best practices, to now being at the state level at our State Department of Education and figuring out what all of those pieces are and how the bus moves and 
and all the people that are a part of it. And so that has really shaped me and really drives the work and going. I love when you talk, Dr. McClure, about your why, because that is what centers me. Because work like this, as you know, can be taxing. It can take a lot out of you. And so to be able to always anchor yourself in your family or the things that bring you joy is really something that means a lot to me. So that's a little nutshell of my trajectory of who I am. But yeah, that, that's how I would describe myself right now. Amazing, amazing. And can you talk a little bit about your role as a consultant? Absolutely. So In our training as school psychologists, we have those, what I would call the three key pillars, assessment, intervention, and consultation. And with consultation, that was the one thing that I really latched onto in my training. I loved assessment, but I knew I didn't want to necessarily do that all the time. What I loved was that ability to talk with teachers or talk with administrators and say, you know, Let me help you figure out what works best for you and how we can make our school system better. So consultation really was something I gravitated towards. So when I got the opportunity to become an educational consultant for our Pennsylvania Training and Technical Assistance Network, it was like I thought I landed my dream job because I had the opportunity now to be in school districts and to see things kind of come to be. You know, when we're in districts, you're in the weeds a lot. You don't really see the forest for the trees because you're in it. But I had the ability to be that outsider looking in to kind of guide, coach on the side. And so that role was just super important. And I was able to really think about the initiatives that I was placed on. So one initiative was the behavior initiative, which the name has changed to learning environment and engagement, but really focusing on things like positive behavior interventions and supports, focusing on, you know, doing functional behavioral assessments that are sound and really appropriate for students. And then looking at the academic side with multi-tiered systems of support and also family engagement. So those were things that kept me going, excited me about this work. But a part of that, as I was doing that work, I started to realize there were certain students who weren't getting the same access and opportunity as others. And primarily in the behavior world, suspensions and expulsions were higher for students that look like me and like you. And those were things that just kind of really rattled me in a lot of ways. And so my consultation evolved to not just be about best practices universally, but how can they be equitable? How can they be sound and make sure that students are getting what they need to be successful? And that really has driven my career change into really focusing on equity at the core. Because again, it's not that I knew that equity, the term equity and what it was, I knew kind of the concept, but I always equated that to equality. And now having a much clearer understanding on what equity in education really means is how consultation helps shape that that goal. And now you mentioned this career change. Can you talk a little bit about that career change and the work that you're doing now? Absolutely. So I often share the background to get to how I got to this place. If you can recall the 2016 presidential election, there was a time when when that election happened, there were so many different opinions, thoughts. People were happy. People were upset. You had so many different thoughts. 
in our schools, we saw that manifest in our students. And so one of the schools in our in our state had an incident where students walked down the hall with signs of the former president and shouted white power at other students or you're going back to Mexico and, and things like that. And so the administrator did not know what to do with that. But the video went viral. And, and you know how this goes. It goes viral. And there's it's a hard way to control kind of what's happening when media gets involved, etc. At the same time, the students who saw this happen wanted to stage a sit-in in protest of what happened at that building. And again, the administrator was sitting there going, what do I do with these two groups of students that I'm responsible for? And so I was brought in to help support that administrator from a consultative lens. And in thinking about that, when I came back to the Department of Education, because the patent system is a training arm of that work, the former secretary, Secretary Pedro Rivera, said, we need a toolkit or something to help administrators. And so I was instrumental in helping to develop the equity and inclusion toolkit for the Department of Education. And that sort of gave me an entryway into connecting to the department on a different level around equity and inclusion. So from there, I was able to support in our state what we have our intermediate units that support school districts locally. And those intermediate units wanted to approach equity and inclusion. And I was able to coordinate those efforts statewide. And so as that progressed, our secretary changed, and we currently have Secretary Noe Ortega. And at the time, I had to be honest with you, Byron, I was burning out. (laughs) I was getting tired. This was right in the midst of COVID. And I said, you know, I've given all I can. I just, I don't know what my next step will be. And again, I'm a woman of faith. So I got the call from Noe and he said, you know, I would love to have you on my team. I think we could make some really big strides around equity and inclusion. And I would love for you to come on board as we round out this administration. And it was one of those once in a lifetime opportunities that as a school psychologist, I was like, bet, I need to do this. (laughs) This needs to happen. So that background is, is really special and important to the work that you're doing. I would love to hear a little bit more about the toolkit that you mentioned, if possible. Absolutely. So when we think about crisis response in Pennsylvania, we had adopted a three-step process, prevention, response, and recovery. So we thought it would make sense for administrators to not go too far away from that and really approach bias incidents, for lack of a better term, from that three-step approach. So what could you do to prevent these things from happening? What could you do to make the climate better already so that these things don't happen? If it does happen, then what is your response? How do you speak to parents? How do you speak to the media? Because the media is going to come. How do you have those talking points ready? And then the recovery process. After an incident, you and I both know from our school psych background, you have to restore some sort of normalcy, some sort of calm, and make sure that the harm isn't as powerful as it was at the time of the incident? How do you reduce that harm so people feel more comfortable and safe when they return? So that's the nature of the toolkit. And it was something that, you know, folks accessed, but then we took it a step further. And the work that I was able to do that following two years when I was working with the intermediate units was the development of the PDE Equitable Practices Hub. 
And that hub holds the toolkit and other big resources, uh, such as the resources that you've put out, Dr. McClure, that really speak to improving climate. And so we've broken that down into six pillars. And just for really quickly, I'm going to tell you what they are. I'm not going to go one by one (laughs) and talk through each one, but they're general equity practices, self-awareness, data practices, family and community engagement, academic equity, and disciplinary equity. And so we wanted to make a one-stop shop where educators from across the nation could access this hub and find vetted resources that we know have utility for any one of those pillars, whether you're a principal, a teacher, a student, a parent, and being able to just find things easily because we get inundated with a lot And this was just a one-stop shop where things could be readily available. So that was the evolution of the toolkit into what's currently available now. And there's so much value in those toolkits that that you're referencing. I'm interested to hear in your perspective, developing toolkits, working with educators across the state. What does deficit thinking mean to you? Yeah. So unfortunately, deficit thinking is pervasive. It's something that I think... Even outside the scope of education, deficit thinking is something that exists, unfortunately, in my opinion, nationally, no matter the spectrum that you're in. And so when I think about it and what it means to me, I almost see it as cutting people short on their true potential and on the true ability and resiliency and agency that they actually have. Because when you go in with a deficit mindset, you've now negated all of the experiences of that person that really makes them unique and special. So when I hear that term, it sort of, again, one of those rattling moments, it rattles me because the impact of that translates into how you interact with others, into how you ensure that they get what they need. And it really can make a difference in a lot of, in our case, students' lives, if that deficit thinking continues to permeate from an educator lens. Now, from your lens, especially working at the state level, what do you think the biggest challenge with deficit thinking is and how does it show up in classrooms and the education system? So I think the biggest challenge is that people have good intentions. And so the good intentions, what I mean by that is they want to help people. They want to do well for people. They want to do right by people. Where I think it gets a little... I don't know if uncomfortable is the word I want to say, but where it gets a little bit overboard is when we start to just simply generalize groups of people with a deficit mindset. And with that, then our compassion or our empathy turns into pity and sympathy. And when we operate from that lens, we almost come off like we're saving people instead of actually helping and partnering with them. And You and I, others, you can recognize when someone has pity on you and our students are no different. They're very astute and aware. And so if you feel that that unsettling feeling of pity can make you retreat, can make you shut down, can make you defensive. And so I think that's how it manifests for me and what I've seen. I can recall sitting in meetings, doing types of IEP meetings, MDE meetings, whatever the case is. And before a parent may come in, you would hear folks saying, well, you know, that family doesn't even care about their education, you know, or, you know, they aren't worried about what so-and-so does because they're out 
doing whatever. And already there's a deficit mindset. And who are we to make those determinations on whether or not they care about education? They may care about it, but in a different way than you and I care about it. And so when we approach things through that deficit lens, we have cut short that ability to actively connect with people in a way that makes sense. Now, Nicole, can you talk a little bit about how this deficit thinking might be addressed from a systemic level? Mm -hmm. And you have to, right? Because if you don't address the system, it's not going to make a significant shift. And what we were saying before about the generalizability of how deficit thinking can make a difference. So for me, when I think about systems, I often come at this from a training and technical assistance perspective. People aren't aware unless they are made known to be aware (laughs) that they have that type of thinking or that it even is a reality. I've seen others, my colleagues, Dr. Amira Hill-Yancey, I have to shout her out. She does trainings around deficit thinking because this is a real topic that people, again, like bias, when we have trainings on bias, we have to piece that in. That deficit thinking comes with some of those biased uh, thoughts and processes that we may not even realize we have. And so when we go from an asset-based frame of mind Oftentimes, our whole energy, our whole approach changes. So systemically, I think what you have to do is think about it through the lens of training, whether that's in a tiered approach, whether you're training administrators first or teams first, like MTSS teams first, and then moving down to staff and other educators, teachers included. But I think you have to be intentional in whatever you do systematically, because that blanket, let's do a one shot, let's do a training with everyone, that's not going to make the difference or the impact that you're looking for. So I think systemically, it's being able to do that training, but then also, what does the technical assistance look like? So when we're in team meetings and we're having dialogue about student groups, for instance, that aren't meeting a certain benchmark, how can we make sure the questions don't become problems that we just admire over and over again? How do we make them so that we're looking at the solutions that are within our sphere of influence? And I think sometimes we get so caught up in, well, they don't have this, or well, their community is like this. That may be true, but our responsibility is to the students that are sitting in front of us. So systematically, I think systems have to be approached in a multiple approach pronged way. Now, that's really good. And you talk on a number of things that I reference in my work, being able to to focus on your sphere of influence, I think is super, super critical. I would love to hear your perspective. I know part of your work has involved helping students with disabilities to develop these plans. Can you talk a little bit more about those plans that you help students with? And then if you have one or two practical strategies that can really help us in our thinking and even developing, you know, effective solutions for students with disabilities. I'd love to hear your your take on that. Absolutely. So the work that I was able to do around increasing graduation rates for students with disabilities, that was very system approach. So what we did is worked with uh, high schools across the Commonwealth in Pennsylvania to really think about, again, intentionally, how are you going to think about your graduation rates in a way that has sustainability across time? And so we looked at the work of Robert Belfonts from Johns Hopkins, and he talks about the ABCs. So attendance, behavior, and course performance. So those three big buckets that we need to really focus on across the trajectory of a high school student, 
what are the ways that we can address those things right away so that they don't get out of control to the point where we can't come back from them? And so he talks about the importance of using an early warning system. And so when we think about it, elementary school, we do universal screenings. This is almost the equivalent of universal screening at the high school level. So being able to look across your system and figure out which students are, for lack of a better word, in the red, in the yellow, or in the green zone. And so when we look at that, we can say, well, looking at attendance, if they've missed X amount of days, they're in the red zone. So we need to think about creative attendance strategies. We need to think about how we can get students to have alternative ways of accessing content so that they're still getting what they need. Behaviorally, if they have three or more office discipline referrals, that's a a red flag. So how do we address those students from a systemic uh, lens? course performance, looking at high school English courses, high school math, and those typically are the two main subjects that they focus on. What are the grades looking like? Are they below 60 something percent? And it's all different from school to school. And so those are the the things that we really focused on as the first step for systems to really evaluate how they can support their students with disabilities. And in this particular project, we only looked at the students with disabilities in the high school and then focused on those ABC indicators. But some other things that we we noticed was that we need to focus on things like multi-tiered systems of support at the secondary level, because often it sits at that elementary space. How do we adjust it to fit at the secondary level? We also talked about culturally responsive practices. They shouldn't stop at elementary and they should permeate K-12. So those were things that we knew were important, not only for students with disabilities, but students in general. So those were just some of the key things that, that we recognized as part of the project. You mentioned two practical strategies. When we think about what those could look like for students with disabilities at the high school level, credit recovery is one that we saw really work in a lot of our systems. We didn't want to see students not graduate because they missed, let's say, two credits. What are the the structures we could put in place so they could earn those credits and, and get that diploma on time? So that's one that definitely worked right away. And like I said, I think the early warning system would be the second practical strategy. Your data systems in schools can pick up that type of information quickly, can collect it quickly, and it's just a matter of being able to sit and problem solve around it. So those would be the two that I would recommend. I really, really love those. Those seems very practical and they just make good sense as well. So, Nicole, as we bring this this show, this interview to a close, any closing thoughts that you have around deficit thinking or anything that's important for, for us to know? Yeah. So I guess as I close out, again, just thank you for the opportunity. But I love the fact that you call these healing conversations because we do need to heal from a lot of the things that we as students encountered and what our students currently are encountering and sadly what our future students may encounter. So addressing things like deficit thinking is a road to healing. Because if we can acknowledge that these things are happening and that people are exposed to them and they're making trajectories that should not be, if we can change just one piece of what we do through the thinking that we have, then we're on the road to healing. So I'm just thankful to continue to be a part of your community. And I hope that I can come back and support you in any way possible so we can continue to heal. I'm going to have our engineering team drop a bomb right there. That was so... <laughs> 
so amazing. Like, did you just come up with that off the top of your head? Like, I love that. Awesome. That was really good. I love that. We're going to have to uh, get you a cut or something. That that has to be like our tagline for, for this book. That's really good. Awesome. I love that. I love that. How can people get in touch with you or connect with you through social media? Absolutely. So Twitter is probably the best way to connect with me. I'm at Dr. Nicole H. Sims. And yes, feel free to reach out, connect with me, DM me if you need to ask specific questions. Uh, But yeah, or LinkedIn, you can find me there too. Go blow her up on social media. Dr. Holland Sims, thank you so much for joining us for this Healing Center conversation and giving us some practical strategies to hack deficit thinking. Until next time, take care, everyone. 